This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, which is out now in paperback. Gathering together Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work from over three decades, Abolition Geography presents her contribution to the politics of abolition as a theorist, researcher, and organizer, something that Ruthie and I discussed not so long ago here on The Dig. Abolition Geography moves away from uninterrupted histories of prejudice or the dull compulsion of neoliberal economics. Instead, Gilmore offers a geographical grasp of how contemporary racial capitalism operates through an anti-state state that answers crises with the organized abandonment of people and environments deemed surplus. Drawing on the lessons of grassroots organizing and internationalist imaginaries, abolition geography undoes the identification of abolition with mere decarceration and reminds us that freedom is not just a principle, but also a place. Abolition Geography by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Christopher Chitty left so much paradigm-shifting scholarship unfinished when he tragically died at age 32 in 2015. Thankfully, his friend and comrade Max Fox picked up Chitty's unfinished dissertation and turned it into a truly remarkable, if inevitably unfinished book, Sexual Hegemony, Statecraft, Sodomy, and Capital in the Rise of the World System. This interview is with Max and with Chris Nealon, a member of Chitty's dissertation committee, who wrote a powerful introduction to the book. The book is an unorthodox one that brings the history of sexuality in general, and male homosexuality in particular, into a Marxist framework, tracing practices of male same-sex eroticism and its policing and punishment from the ascent of capitalist social relations in early modern northern Italian city-states all the way to the contemporary United States, following what Giovanni Arichi called the changing hegemonic centers of the world system. Sexual hegemony raises important questions about the historical contingency of sexuality under capitalism, and, as a result, the notion that queer people inevitably or automatically possess an anti-capitalist politics or positionality. On the other hand, it renders absurd these recurrent portrayals on the new right and also regrettably but more marginally also on the left of working class people as fundamentally heteronormative and traditionalist. And it will, I hope, provide scholars out there listening right now to this episode with a critical research agenda that Chidi's tragic early death left undone. Before we get rolling, you may have heard that we're getting ready to launch The Dig Presents, a new monthly series of documentary stories. Testing, one, two, three, four, five, six. Coming soon from the dig. So, yeah, where does it start? A new series of documentary stories. My name is Thelma Jackson. I'm a violent revolutionary. I would like to overthrow this country tonight. I keep my weapons and I am ready at any time. On this season, radical black women at Jonestown. And I would like to overthrow this country right now. The fight for a neighborhood garden in Cairo. Orders. Okay, what can we say about orders? 
you know, we say nothing. A kaleidoscopic history of the U.S. interstate system. What is out there? Again, what are we not looking at? What is what is being ravaged while we're not looking at it? Also, have you guys ever had any UFO encounter or anything like that? Oh, I, I mean, I'm 100 percent. I'm 100 percent. UFO sightings, identity politics, 70s feminism, and the Tennessee Valley Authority. I guess you could say I'm the squeaky wheel, the barking dog that gets attention, but I really don't have any power. I don't know. I feel like I feel like if I answer that wrong, I'm I'm walking into a trap. Wait, what trap? Listen to The Dig Presents monthly, starting soon. These stories are so incredibly captivating and well done, and I can't wait to share them with you all. But they are also much more expensive than a typical Dig episode to produce. That's where you come in. I want to order a second season of The Dig Presents, but to do so, we need to make it financially viable. To do that, we need to be bringing in an additional $1,000 a month. That's about 200 new patrons paying $5 a month, 100 new patrons paying $10 a month, or 50 new patrons contributing $20 a month. Don't get me wrong, that will not come close to covering all our costs, but I think it's enough for me to make sure that we're not going to end up, like, bankrupt. And so, if you've been meaning to support The Dig, please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this podcast up and running strong and to ensure that The Dig Presents becomes a permanent part of The Dig. We also have books, tote bags, and mugs to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. And a contribution of any amount at all will get you our wonderful weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Click the link now. It's in the show notes. Contribute. And a reminder that you can check out our truly wonderful newsletters alongside our vast archive of past dig episodes at thedigradio.com. Okay, here's Chris Nealon and Max Fox. Chris Nealon teaches English at John Hopkins University. He is the author of, most recently, a book of poems called The Shore, and a collection of essays on poetry and capitalism called Infinity for Marxists. Max Fox is a writer and translator and a founding editor of Pinko Magazine. We're discussing sexual hegemony, statecraft, sodomy, and capital in the rise of the world system by the late Christopher Chitty. I also posted some links to other texts relevant to Chitty and this discussion in the show notes. Chris Nealon and Max Fox, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dan. We should start this interview by talking about Christopher Chitty, the author of the remarkable book we're discussing. Who was Chris and what was his project? So Christopher Chitty was a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz in the History of Consciousness Department. He died in 2015. He was a thinker who was engaged in revisiting the tradition of sexual liberation from Marxist premises with an aim at illuminating both poles in a new way. 
And he was working on this extremely ambitious project for his PhD dissertation that ended up becoming this book that I edited called Sexual Hegemony, uh, which in particular is a re-narrativization of the development of the sort of category of the male homosexual through a history of the capitalist world system um, and kind of vice versa. Yeah, uh, you know, Max got to know Chris quite well at Santa Cruz and Chris Shitty and I only met once in person in Berkeley, where at the time I was still teaching to discuss the possibility of my working with him on his project. And as Max describes, it was working in really special ways to rethink both capitalist history and the history of sexuality. And I got super excited and signed on (laughs) kind of on the dot and got to know Chris primarily across the continent through um, him sending me drafts of what would finally become this, this book. I understand that that Chris was also a committed organizer in, in social movements, particularly those around the University of California and and also in Oakland, and that he may have been one of the anonymous authors of Communique from an Absent Future, which which announced this new period of student struggle from both graduates and undergraduates and put the language of Occupy really in an activist circulation two years before Occupy Wall Street. Can you say a little bit about his politics, how his activism frames this project? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, he was not just a brilliant scholar, but he was a fairly committed militant. He showed up in Santa Cruz, I think in 2008. Basically, he was like one of a cohort of uh, graduate students who started right as the financial crash upended any of the fantasies that sustain a lot of people's engagement in this kind of activity as like a a way of stabilizing your own capacity for intellectual production and things like that. That fantasy was sort of shredded, let's say. And he uh, was part of a, a movement where I met him, a student movement to mobilize against these um, unprecedented tuition hikes. And I think it was 30% or more or something in a single year. All of a sudden, the state claimed they didn't have the revenue to support uh, higher education at the levels that they once had. And so he and you know comrades and friends assembled this statewide mobilization with some very sophisticated analyses of the relationship between the university and the function of education in the capitalist state that in particular took the form of building occupations. Um, And the sort of explicit aim at the time was to sort of put occupation back on the table as a tactic. And in that sense, it was certainly successful because a couple of years later, it became this global practice. But it was even still global then. I think I remember I was in one building occupation and we had some kind of a a Zoom of some sort with students who were engaged in similar struggles in Switzerland, perhaps, or Vienna or something. And we made these connections internationally to the point where, like, you know, there was a violent crackdown on one of the occupations in Berkeley, I think. And these people who we'd been just video chatting with marched on the American embassy in Vienna to sort of protest our treatment at the hands of the Berkeley PD, which I was really moved by as kind of a really touching, slightly funny gesture that the American embassy would have anything to do with 
such a decision. But so that was the context, I guess, in which I met him and that he sort of became this beloved figure in Santa Cruz political struggle. And then he moved up to Oakland after in the the Occupy Oakland sort of struggles that took place a couple of years after this university struggle. Turning to the book, Sexual Hegemony asks a really big question. What's the relationship between sexual practices and identity and the social form of capitalist rule? But before we get to Chris's argument, can you sketch out for us what the prevailing ideas among Marxists have been on this question? In terms of homosexuality and capitalism, I think there's a set of arguments that were made by activists in early liberationist days about whether and in what sense homosexuality or homosexuals could be considered a class, literally or on analogy with the working class. And there's another set of arguments that emerged later in the first semi-professional and then professional practice of like gay history that have more to do with the ways in which the kind of male homosexuality and in some sense lesbianism we know today um, emerged from capitalism. Famous arguments were made about, say, military service in World War II, sifting people into same-sex environments and then familiarizing them with the pleasures of those environments as they returned to civilian life and congregated in places like San Francisco or New York. So making more or less direct arguments about the relationship between capitalism and aspects of capitalist life, like serving in the military during a time of war, lead to, to claiming an identity that wasn't available before. I think a third thing that you could say there is a tradition of thinking of claimed homosexuality being part of a way of thinking about yourself as an outsider to capital, a renegade, a deviant, unincorporable into all that capitalism asks of us, um, various critiques of normalcy as being party to just the reproduction of capitalist life. And those things could all overlap or intersect or produce a recipe of more subtle ways of thinking about homosexuality and capitalism. But I would say in, in broad strokes, those are kind of like three different ways that before somebody like Chris had been talked about. I mean, there's also a less sympathetic way that some Marxists have thought about homosexuality, famously imagining it as a, as a sort of bourgeois decadence and a pernicious deviation that, you know, a healthy proletarian society would be able to eliminate. And, you know, it's obviously not solely the purview of uh, Marxists or communists to think this way, but um, that that is there. Most concretely, sexual hegemony, I think, is about how to think about the regulation of sexuality as a as a technique of bourgeois rule. And Chris seems to reach for hegemony to make sense of how sexuality is managed beyond mere repression of deviant sexual practices and and through the construction and manipulation of morals and mores. But is it also about the role of sexuality in any given hegemonic project? Does does sexual hegemony imply something particular to bourgeois rule in, in Chris's formulation? My immediate answer is yes, it is bourgeois, because he makes a pretty clear claim that a decoupling of biological reproduction from the reproduction of ownership is one of the preconditions for sexuality to be a kind of like free-floating thing that requires both direct and indirect ways of being managed and manipulated, 
and that that's just not a germane category of pre-bourgeois societies, that this thing isn't quite free-floating enough yet. At the same time, you know, in this study that he's doing, um, he's very deliberately looking at pre-modern, early modern, pre-bourgeois social formations for evidence of their various attempts at intervening in the sexual conduct of their uh, their subjects. So he sort of historicized the, the emergence of sexuality as an object that's somehow uh, separate from forms of direct domination, let's say. You know, it's it's one of those tricky or contradictory elements of his study because he's looking at dynamics of capitalist accumulation that are at one end of a fairly coherent chain of historical processes that lead to the present, but importantly, are not in the same type of social dynamic as we are now, which is exactly what he's trying to look at. He's trying to he's trying to sort of allow the historicity of these practices to come into relief by looking at things that are both stable across heterogeneous social formations and which undergo significant change. Partly what's so interesting is that the historical scope of the book, which we'll be talking about in a little bit, is so wide. It ends in the contemporary and begins pretty early on in the history of the capitalism that we recognize. You can see, I I like to use the word weaponization, like the weaponization of sodomy as a political tool, as a tool of scandal, as a tool of management of people, looks different when an emergent bourgeoisie is weaponizing sodomy against its rivals, the aristocracy, and than it does later when it's mobilizing the specter of sodomy against working populations to regulate them in various ways. At the same time, especially early in Chris's book, there's this important historical struggle. It's a three-way struggle that facilitates the emergence of the bourgeoisie where it has to establish victory over the aristocracy for domination of what we might now call working people, proletariats. And that three-way tug looks different ways at different moments in the manuscript, right? So Chris points out homosexuality, male homosexuality, is this constant site of cross-class contact as well as intra-class potential for scandal. And so what you might do to weaponize sexuality, to weaponize sodomy accusations, could look different in different scenarios and at different historical moments to, to nudge a rival out of competition for resources or to position the class against another class more advantageously. So accusations against uh, against vagrancy early in the period that Chris is, is studying are all intertwined with sodomy prosecutions. Later on, of course, modern versions of public health become intertwined with a desire to make sure that there's no sodomitical activity <laughs> in the you know, nucleated working family. So, you know, what it means to weaponize sodomy proves advantageous differently for an emergent and later a dominant bourgeoisie that's looking to maintain its dominance at different times. It's like a very uh, mobile tool. And I think the fact of that is partly what allows Chris to investigate such a huge range of historical material, because it's this changing but actually strangely constant through line for the bourgeoisie. (laughs) What sort of questions was Chidi trying to answer about the operation of power that common sense understandings of bourgeois normativity, central watchwords in the domain of queer theory that they cannot answer. We we earlier discussed where Chitty fits into Marxist scholarship. What sort of intervention does sexual hegemony mark out in the field of queer theory? I think for Chitty, normativity 
is a little free-floating. Like, where do norms come from? And I know that can sound sort of anti-intellectual, but that's the last thing Chris Chitty was. I think he had a pretty rigorous analysis of how normativity is kind of a free-floating punt, if you're being really materialist, about who's creating the situation in which something gets even to be normative or considered normative in the first place. By punting that question, you can lose track of different aspects of a class struggle and how that struggle looks different in different times and places. And so I think what he was partly doing is trying to get away from that dynamic for those reasons, because it didn't seem like to have a really good cause and effect story. But also um, the thing about normativity is that it divides the world into the normal and the queer or the normal and the abnormal. And though that is a rhetorical thing throughout, say, you know, the 19th, late 19th and into the 20th century, that rhetorical story isn't necessarily the same as what's going on on the ground. And, you know, late in the game, in the use of the word normative in queer theory, that there have been attempts to acknowledge that there might be populations of homosexuals who feel quite happy and even sort of aspirational around the normal, for instance. So the language of homonormativity comes back in and tries to rescue the analytic utility of the concept of the normative by saying, well, it's not so simple as saying there's the, there's the normies and the queers. There's a lot of queers who want to be normies or maybe a lot of normies who wish they were queer and try to be, you know. And so you end up, as you can see, right, with this kind of like circular thing where not only kind of like historical cause and effect uh, slip out of the picture, but also sort of it ends up being about categories as opposed to like actual social dynamics of struggle. And I think Chris was really conscious of trying to do the second thing more than the first thing, whatever utility, normativity, homo or otherwise might have had in really local contexts at one time or another. Yeah. In the introduction, he talks about the normal as a kind of status property that frees you from a sort of like condescension at like the, the people who would feel that the acquisition of such a status property is, is necessary for them. Like sometimes you really, you need to appeal for a certain kind of stability or whatever, because you and your life world is under attack by the state, for example. And so the attainment of a kind of normativity or a kind of status property can still then be conceptualized as like, maybe that's not like totally in your, you know, revolutionary interests or whatever, but it's like, it's not the kind of object of false consciousness or something. Sure, we can acknowledge that sexuality and gender are socially constructed, which is the sort of, at some level, is like the big achievement of certain kind of queer theory, perhaps. But you sort of need a critical approach to capitalist society to understand that the means of constructing it otherwise is completely out of our hands, right? Unless you're sort of attached to a slightly liberal voluntarist idea of how society is simply the like concord of you know contracting powers or whatever you you need to have some some sense of the social as class society otherwise you're kind of still lost in the confusion that you were hoping to get out of by saying it's it's all social anyway yeah i mean for, for chidi what you really need is political economic context and critical to that context is the separation of producers from control over the means of production, which is, from a Marxist perspective, critical to the rise of capitalism. But it's also critical, Chitty argues, in the creation of modern forms of sexuality. What is the relationship, as Chitty sees it, between the separation of producers and the means of production, what, what Marxists call primitive accumulation, on the one hand, and on the other, the separation of biological reproduction and the reproduction of ownership. And what then did that all mean 
for sexuality in general and male same-sex sex in particular. Yeah, well, if by ownership, you kind of mean the ownership of the things that would allow you to reproduce your own existence, a separation from that, not like bourgeois property ownership, it becomes such an interesting story, especially a story about kind of migration out of family structures and into places like cities, again, across a wide range of historical periods as apprentices, as kind of semi-surplus citizens of the city in a more modern proletarian configuration later, young men um, with the opportunity to be proletarianized, but only intermittently sometimes, right? Later on, like traditional kind of like blue collar working class persons in, in the 20th century, all of whom in different ways live downstream from one form or another, the perpetual separation of themselves from the means of the ability to like make their own lives the way they see fit. And I think that there's something really interesting there in Chris's work about how the homosexuality that we either see or project onto the past, see in it or project onto it, is like a vector for actual and potential forms of life and ways of building community that have anti-capitalist potential. Almost like less than the fact of the sexuality itself but the, the way that those paths of migrancy, say, out of a family where you're superfluous, we don't need you to maintain the farm. <laughs> um, go survive some other way in the city. Lead to life ways where you encounter other people in a similar situation and experience forms of intimacy that whatever sexual acts they may entail with other men, create the possibility of envisioning or living small, small ways, something else. Chris, um, his word was de-dramatize. <laughs> he sort of like thinks of male homosexuality as like having afforded these interesting opportunities across time for thinking outside the box, the capitalist box. Nothing innate to homosexuality affords that, but the questions those experiences raise are actually quite deep <laughs> and possibly deeper to flash forward a little bit than maybe somebody even like Foucault wanted to think about. So, yeah. So that phrase, the decoupling of biological reproduction or the reproduction of ownership, for me, the, the meaning of that is the uh, liquidation of peasant ownership that took place at the sort of hinge of the transition to uh, capitalist society. So if you think about peasant families, title in property is contingent on being married and having viable offspring to whom you can pass down the plot or whatever. Like this is, this is very clearly regulated legally and ecclesiastically as well, as well as on the other pole, noble right is obviously a sort of like biologically produced political property as well. As the transition to the capitalist society begins to disrupt these patterns of reproduction of property transmission, you, you start to see the sort of like out-migration or expulsion of landless peasants who show up in the cities or show up in the countryside as vagrants as this historically new population that, if you think about the sort of legal regulatory structure of the time, doesn't really have a legible mode of reproducing itself sexually or materially, right? So they're they're working in all kinds of un informal 
labor markets, which are at this moment mostly controlled by the guilds. So the guilds find this sort of new population to be disruptive. They're not really capable of forming families because the church won't marry people unless you have title to property, which you can't get because you're displaced from your parish of origin or something. So that's the context for me to understand that as a, as a sort of decoupling that has a historical political economic meaning that's not just like people started thinking a little bit differently about these things. Evidence of male-male eroticism exists throughout history. I, I think virtually anywhere there's people. But Chitty, as we've been discussing, argues that homosexuality as we conceive it today has not. And so just as homosexuality as we understand it emerges only under historically determinate conditions, he also argues that homophobia is not some eternal or constant feature of history since time immemorial. And in fact, making sense of the policing and punishment of homosexuality requires a different historical toolkit than than a theory of recurring phobias or panics over deviant practices or other identities. For Chitty, the policing of homosexuality intensifies at these particular political economic moments of crisis. What are those moments? What sort of moments are they? And what function does the policing of homosexuality serve at those moments? I think if we pause for a moment and say, okay, well, capitalism is never not in crisis in one sense or another, which is to say that it takes a whole lot of activity to maintain accumulation. Then you could say that uh, partly what's interesting about Chris's study is that there are moments where what you're looking at historically is the consolidation of a certain kind of capitalist or proto-capitalist profitability where things are on the upswing. And in those contexts, sodomy, (laughs) accusations, or homophobia is weaponizable in certain ways to help people gain access to increasing spoils. But, you know, um, in other circumstances where a form of profitable pursuit or accumulation is on the decline or in disarray, perhaps dragging with it a form of governance that used to help facilitate that a kind of accumulation, those are also circumstances on the downswing when homophobia uh, is weaponizable to police populations uh, around access to diminishing spoils or social surpluses. Um, Of course, you could say that contemporary homophobia and transphobia looks like case number two. But, you know, crisis could mean different things. It's related to how Chris uses some broad histories and sociologies of capitalism to build his historical story and how that can take a kind of cyclical looking form. Yeah. Uh, The architecture of the book is sort of organized around these periods of crises at the closing of a systemic cycle of accumulation, which is a term that he adopts from Giovanni Arrighi, who is a a Marxist. He calls himself a historical sociologist. Probably commonly referred to as a world systems theorist. Yes. So he is a member of the sort of world systems expanded universe, um, (laughs) a central one. So Arrighi notices following both Fernand Braudel, who is a historian of the Annal School, popularizes the concept of the long durée, which means taking an extremely long historical time frame over which to trace historical processes that, like in a given punctual moment, would be imperceptible, but reveal themselves to be trends if you can look at, you know, thousands of years of 
documents or whatever, which he does. And Marx also is someone who makes this observation that the history of capitalism has a series of uh, hegemonic centers that seem to sort of pass off a particular role of organizing first material expansion and then a kind of financialization as they undergo this sort of this flip to the next cycle. Um, and Arigi um, really develops this in quite remarkable detail in a book called The Long 20th Century that traces this history from of, of systemic cycles of accumulation from Genoa to Amsterdam to London and then to the United States as sort of in, increasingly comprehensive and intensive systems of war, trade, and production that exhibit regular two-phase cycles of sort of the expansion of trade and material production, and then a switch to financialization, which he says is the sign of autumn of a sort of given historical center's hegemony. And in this period of financialization, uh, sort of behind its back, the hegemonic center is laying the groundwork for literally financing the expansion of the next hegemon. So Genoa ends up basically paying for Amsterdam to supplant it. Amsterdam does the same at some level for London, which does the same for the United States or New York or whatever. So Chris Chitty takes this as a kind of historical rubric for looking at what he discovers are kind of regular moments of state repression of cultures of male same-sex activity. He's very careful not to call it homosexuality at the beginning because that isn't quite... The categories for that to be meaningful aren't there yet. But he's looking at moments of financial crisis, basically, as providing the backdrop for these periods of state repression. Some of what Max just outlined around this phase shift from profitable investments in productivity reaching a limit because of the contradictions capital always faces and producing a kind of at first slow and then accelerating financialization, which is like a stay against decline, a bet on future profitability. You know, maybe the stuff we manufacture right now won't yield profits, but maybe we invest in certain kinds of securities. Um, the day will come when they will allow us to produce the things that produce the surplus value that affords profit. You know how it goes. I think one of the things about Chris's interest in the Aregian model is that, of course, he's writing, Chris is writing in the aftermath of a financial crisis that for Arigi himself led to a real conundrum. He was very careful, Arigi, about um, saying, I don't know what comes next because each cycle of accumulation has more uh, wide in its arc geopolitically than the previous one. And the U.S. is, was the briefest and the most globally encompassing, which leads to tough questions about who or what is next. And China was often the answer, except in a subsequent book of Arigis, that couldn't be the answer per se. You had to start to think about the whole, the whole system. And so he wrote a book called Adam Smith in Beijing, <laughs> which suggests that you know, China does emerge at the end of this process as a place of strangely like very pure capitalist experimentation because the, the Chinese state can afford to, to back 
those kinds of capitalist experimentation because they have a state-controlled economy. But the full title of that book, in some ways, if you really read it through, would be something like Adam Smith in Beijing, James Boggs in Detroit, you know, because he's looking at the perfect and the shattered conditions of profitability in the same book. So there can't, there can't be a single answer after this. And that's the moment in which Chris Chitty was, was writing. Uh, this great perplexity about the extendability of this cycles of accumulation model that Ariki himself was puzzling over at the time of his death. Let's turn to the more specific history, beginning with the ascent of capitalist social relations in the early modern Mediterranean world, particularly northern Italian cities, and why it was that that political economic context was was conducive in the way that it was to to sex between men. But before we get to that, let's start with the basic political economy. What was going on in, I guess the parameters would be roughly 15th and 16th century during that period in northern Italy? And where, where in retrospect does that fit within the development of the capitalist world system? Yeah, in northern Italy, let's say in the 12th or 13th century, sort of emerging from the infamously like non-dynamic Middle Ages there is a sort of Eurasia-wide increase in economic activity. So all these towns are being founded again. Trade routes get sort of relinked up. And this happens actually across the entire Eurasian continent. There's evidence of this from England to China. It seems like you could attribute that to the sort of establishment of the Mongol Empire as a sort of like political intermediary that wasn't there before. But Northern Italy, the Northern Italian city-states are in a particularly uh, lucky position because they are kind of at the terminus of the trans-Mediterranean shipping routes and the trade uh, across the Mediterranean with goods that are coming in from Asia, as well as the Iberian Peninsula to Northern Europe and become these intermediaries for these two sort of continental-sized economic regions. So basically what that results in is the sort of like fairly early development within the European context of sophisticated trading networks, accounting practices, production techniques, and early capitalist classes in a handful of these northern Italian city-states. So Venice, Milan, Genoa, and Florence. And in Florence in particular, you have a ruling class that very early on specialized and invested in wool production, uh, weaving textiles, um, which is at the time a sort of high technology sector. And banking. And so they become the bankers to Rome, which means they're able to develop all of these business relationships with cities all throughout Europe. They uh, are happy to take payment on behalf of Rome in wool because that's their other line. The wool guild also mostly turns into bankers at a certain point. And what this also means is that. Uh, Florence, Origi says, Florence deindustrializes really early on. And so you have a kind of weirdly modern situation in Florence where you have a population of financiers 
and you have a population of wage laborers and the financiers are no longer invested in productive activity because it's more lucrative for them to do money lending and the wage laborers are trapped in this city with no way of reproducing their lives. Uh, so it's a very politically volatile situation. There's labor struggles. There's workers states kind of almost like the, the sort of lower guild ends up overthrowing the merchant ruling class, installing one of their own at the head of the city. This guy ends up sort of turning on them, crushing them and is himself then kind of betrayed by the ruling class who he was being bought off by. He's also sent out to exile somewhere. All this is to say Florence in the early 1300s, 1400s is an extremely class polarized city anomalously in the context of uh, Europe at the time. It has a bunch of proletarians in the sense that these are people who have nothing but their labor power to sell. And so they are the uh, sort of substratum with which the ruling class, the Medicis, who are these money lenders, wool merchants turned money lenders, come in and start building these famous Florentine Renaissance architectural building projects that we sort of are familiar with as this kind of miraculous, sui generis, like, yeah, this thing that, so that for some reason just showed up at that point in history, um, but in fact has this like interesting, you know, economic development behind it, obviously. Yeah, I think that's a really great and comprehensive answer. I think, you know, Chitty points out that in the sort of center of the period he's interested in Florence, it's downstream from what he, I think, can, without anachronism, call labor struggles. <laughs> um, you know, after the Black Death, of course, there's this huge demographic shift. That The Black Death has this interesting role to play, like uh, cholera epidemic does, and of course HIV does towards the end of the manuscript. I mean, Chris is actually very attentive to what a huge like biological event does to sexuality. But just sticking with Florence for a moment, you know, after the Black Death, of course, there's this, this tilt in favor of laboring populations. And he points out at one point, for instance, that, you know, at least in England and, and I think elsewhere, like vagrancy laws were used to help prevent young men wandering the countryside looking for higher wages. <laughs> Chitty also points out that there's like a kind of three-way struggle there too. There's financiers, um, there's the artisan class, and there's like the the class that extends from apprentices all the way down to truly surplus populations. And that three-way tug, like the cycle of first profitability and then its loss or its decline and expressed as deindustrialization, like is, is part of the story very early on. So there's all these moving parts, profitability that leads to the construction of a set of forms of governance and the, the sh physical shape of a city. And then people whose labor it needs to perform that shaping very quickly become extra to it and need policing for that reason. And that's a recurring motif. What then did same-sex male eroticism look like at the time in these city-states, in Florence in particular? Chitty identifies a key tension. Quote, on the one hand, the sexual freedoms of this life world were constrained by the relations of mastery essential to the functioning of these economies, which were based on direct domination in handicraft production and most other specialized trades, as well as on the loosely feudal ownership of land. On the other hand, dramatic new vistas of sexual freedom opened up as older relations based on domination and a family-centered model of peasant production were dissolved. What were the forces that that shaped the actual practices of sex between men in northern Italy, both both within and 
across classes. So what Chidi is looking at in particular in this sort of pre-modern era is something that he calls Mediterranean sexuality, which he, he says is an expression of basically geological factors um, at some level. You know, the kind of the social uh, form of the cities and the societies around the littoral of the, of the Mediterranean all share certain features that are the result of the constraints of there's not a lot of arable land. Most of the economic activity has to, at some level, take place through maritime trade. And this takes a particular form, for whatever reason, of uh, the seclusion of women in the home and the sort of uh, sex-segregated nature of public space. So the cities, he says, are highly male spaces. So what that means is that sex between men is a fairly regular occurrence because heterosexual sex would require entering into marriage or prostitution, neither of which are like highly available because of uh, the direct domination, the relations of mastery, where the sort of the apprentice is under the sort of like effectively patri- patriarchal power of the master um, led to patterns of extremely late marriage. And so what you get across the board historically and geographically is this sort of casual instance of, of sodomy of same-sex relations. Yeah, I think, um, I think Chris, in addition to that, is also thinking about very particular ways of moving bodies around in the world <laughs> that produce uh, displacements um, and create new opportunities and, and require new forms of policing at the same time. So it's a different way of thinking about the contradiction, right? Like an unruly population that served its purpose and may no longer shunt it off someplace and keep it moving, or do you want to police it and keep it in one place? Yeah, yeah. Turning to that very question of the state regulation and policing of male same-sex sex, Chidi writes about the particular case of Florence. Quote, Many northern Italian city-states established municipal offices for the policing of public morals in the 15th and 16th centuries. And these offices inevitably wound up policing homosexual activity in addition to prostitution, gambling, and other moral offenses. Florence, however, was exceptional in its lenient convictions and punishments. So he compares Medici Florence's extensive but relatively moderate policing system to the more frequent and brutal punishments that happened in city-states like Venice, where the norm was to burn men at the stake for sodomy. What did these different approaches to regulating or repressing or punishing sodomy across these city-states reveal about those states and how they were navigating economic crisis in in Chidi's argument? And also, what were those economic crises that this policing was attempting to to provisionally resolve? So, So he uses the examples of Florence and Venice. So Venice is supposed to have sort of more successfully weathered this shift from productive activity to financialization than Florence did. But they had a much blunter approach to policing a sodomy. So they developed a reputation for being particularly dangerous place for a sailor to be, for example, which led this highly mobile population that basically controlled the sort of fortunes of a trading city like Venice to consider just not sailing there, right? They're like, well, this is not a safe place for me and my crew. So we're going to take 
our shipping business to Livorno instead or whatever. So, so there's this kind of perhaps more medieval or more punitive mode of regulating same-sex activity in Venice that kind of backfires on their ultimate economic interests as a state, as a merchant state. And then what happens in Florence is um, there is the establishment of a secular office that's specifically tasked with regulating sodomy for sort of receiving accusations and hearing cases against people who've been accused. And they call it the uh, the officers of the night, and it um, is in 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 session for eighty years or something in exactly this period of political tumult after the industrialization and the financialization that I was speaking about earlier. Um, and so, what Chitty discovers about that is it's a much more effective tool of regulation to sort of hold back on the like terrifying punishment and instead try and draw out people's sort of accusations and even self-accusations. As a political strategy, it's much more effective if what you want is to gain a tighter grip on a unruly and uh, restive population than to do this kind of like, you know, terrifying force, right? And so through, through the establishment of this office, they get a regular stream of information about who's linked up with whom in the state, you know, what factions are there, who's who's upset with who. It allows the state to issue pardons and be, become this sort of like merciful and even just arbiter of stability. And it provides a kind of uh, outlet for what otherwise might become frustrations that could lead to conspiracies that could lead to the overthrow of the city, which in fact, once they abolish the office in the fifth or early 1600s, Chris has this very masterful reading of certain hints that Machiavelli drops in a series of letters that he's writing to his friend about his patron who was sort of chased out of the city after a revolt by some youths who supposedly were upset that one of their friends was prosecuted for sodomy after the office was abolished and so received a much harsher punishment than he otherwise would have. And so the the argument is that, you know, the sort of father of political rationality and in, in European thought himself understands the proper touch when regulating sodomy in the city to be at the seat of power, basically. You know, there's a place where um, Chetty points out, look, you know, Florence deindustrialized or certainly faced losses in profitability earlier than Venice. And, you know, Venice achieves this transition to all-out finance capital more smoothly, Chris says. And he makes a remark about these rentiers continuing to ruthlessly prosecute Sodomites, but what he also says is that the the spectacular and vicious nature of the punishment meant there nobody wanted to say anything. Um, so there were far by a factor of ten or more, there were far fewer such prosecutions, which leads us back to this thing that Max was talking about, like sailors saying, "No way am I going to Venice." And so they're kind of like kicking themselves 
by the middle of the 15th century and they they start to dial it back in in Venice. But there's the seeds of a materialist analysis about viciousness of punishment and the ideological backdrop for, you know, why one course happens in in one place and a different course is taken in another. And and also about how ruling classes realize that they may have miscalculated because what it means to successfully police a population is a moving target. (laughs) And you can realize that your strategy is backfiring against you. Capitalist elites always figure this out, you know, and they figure it out too late or they in the rearview mirror and they adjust accordingly. Um, And that's a little bit the story of Venice and, and Florence, too. Chidi writes that a fascination with sodomy in the ancient world loomed large in early modern Italy. Quote, There can be little doubt that the cultural rediscovery and veneration of antiquity in Renaissance Italy played no small role in aesthetically authorizing the practice of love for boys and male youths. He writes, quote, The homosexualities of ancient Greece must themselves be considered the contingent outcome of a history of class struggle, war, and the first democratic and republican polities. What was the ancient Greek practice of pederasty? And then how did its rediscovery shape Renaissance Italy and how how northern Italians interpreted and explained sex between men? Yeah, so he says that this isn't like a sort of timeless, like cultural feature of ancient Greek society, that it's in fact a result of a transformation into a class society in the 6th century, I think. The Dorian invasions, the adoption of iron, which sort of democratizes uh, war-making, and the rise of craft production, all of which sort of results in these social institutions that have sort of erotic love between men at, at their center. So the sort of gymnasia and Pederasty famously in in Greece involves a sort of erotic valorization of the beauty of youths before the like the beard comes in as like the the ideal age. And he says that this is this is sort of a feature of Greek polities uh, only after this sort of transformation into a type of class society that is present in the Mediterranean type of sexuality that he he identifies as sort of persisting since that time around the the Mediterranean basin. The question you asked, Anne, about like, what's the role of this love of antiquity in the early modern period? The way Chris answers that is such an incredible example of his political and scholarly cast of mind. Like, he has a really materialist answer to that question. We're so used to thinking like, oh, those Greeks, they worked out a lot in the gyms and like they all had great bodies. And of course they were gay. Like, look at those six packs, you know, it's just, how could you not? And he does something super different, which is like, there is this before and this after tyranny. And tyranny, not just meaning like ruthless, arbitrary, but possessors of debt, right? That impoverish people by demanding repayments of debts. And so like the before story is kind of like these hoplitist soldiers, like same-sex environment, very militarily disciplined to have a key role in overthrowing tyranny and canceling debts. And so, you know, Chitty says like there's this, there becomes this association in the rearview mirror of like, oh, you know, those like heavily male bonded dudes canceled all our debts, <laughs> right? So flash forward to the early modern period, there's this like hatred of tyranny in the in the name of good governance, good statecraft, and like this funny lineage of like a band of tightly bonded men could have a special role to play in making sure that things don't get financially out of control. 
That's a before story. And then for Chitty, very briefly, but really pointedly, the after story is like after the overthrow of these debt-holding tyrants, institutions can begin to flourish that themselves, in extra-military ways, but in artisanal ways, scenes of craft production are same-sex organized and facilitate a new form of male-male eroticism. But in both cases, the military before story and the kind of artisanal after story, it's built around the story of a relationship a society has to the, the potentially debilitating role of excessive, of excessive debt and the class-polarizing role that excessive debt creates. So it's like... It's a Greek story, but it's so much more materialist than the typical story you get. It's about who's, who owes who money and which kinds of institutions end up having a role to play or which kinds of social organization have a, have a role to play in overthrowing that. So it's just like a, it's a great question. Chitty's way of answering that longstanding question is so different. Chitty following Uri then turns to the United Provinces, a, a rising economic, colonial, and naval power whose Protestant leaders had broken the northern half of their two-four Spanish Netherlands free from Habsburg control. But before we get to homosexuality, what, what accounted for the rise to economic and military power of this geographically and demographically small Dutch polity beginning in the 16th century? What, what is the Dutch role in this, this grand sweep of capitalist history? So as I was mentioning before there, the sort of like successor to uh, what Origi identifies as the Genoese cycle of accumulation. Genoa happens to be the, when, when they financialize, they become the backers of the Iberian kingdoms. Um, and so the United Provinces are engaged in a struggle for independence against Spain, which means against uh, Genoese capital, basically. And the loss of control over the the interstate market and mobile capital that the Genoese held reestablishes itself in Amsterdam. Basically, Amsterdam becomes this sort of like this sort of entrepot of all the commodities of the sort of inter-European trade, as well as the sort of the world market that the the Iberian empires have just sort of cracked open in their voyages of discovery. So Amsterdam is now the kind of like beneficiary of the conquests that the Genoese Iberian uh, cycle of accumulation set in motion. And the, the basis of this for Amsterdam is shipbuilding and military discipline, basically. So they take over the trade routes, the the Portuguese and the Spanish have in the Indies and the West Indies. They innovate a, a form of disciplined standing army that is fairly unprecedented in European, if not world history. And they have the first stock market that's constantly in session in, in Amsterdam as well. So they have all these features of uh, capitalist modernity fairly early on in the 1600s. One aspect of what's so special about Chris following the war of the Spanish succession, um, working conditions, this is a quote actually, deteriorated rapidly in the merchant shipping industry and seamen joined pirate ships by the thousands. And it's like they're working for, they're, they're looking for different working conditions. <laughs> and the more renegade character of those working conditions also seems to produce different kinds of political arrangements, arrangements you could indeed begin to call political. So Chetty begins to describe some of what happens as you know, almost like in Lukaci in terms, pirates briefly figure out that they're sort of like a class. They're like conscious of themselves and they 
she lists all these things that they start to do. They show up at public executions. They rally for lowering the prices of the commodities that they need to survive, foodstuffs, et cetera. So like, you know, a displacement in the labor force and different shifts in the condition of their labor uh, begin to produce political activity. We're getting closer to the modern end of the story, right? We're further away from the displacement of peasant populations at the beginning of the book and more towards something like a proto-modern understanding by a group of people that they might in some funny way constitute a political force and maybe even like a fraction of a class. Yeah, Chitty writes, quote, Sailors engaged in dirty passions across lines of class and race, raising the specter of those forms of solidarity that were utterly anathema to the government of ships, not to mention a slave trade based on the fiction that some humans were less than human. The concern for homosexuality cannot be due to those famously Protestant concerns for moral decency and uprightness, despite whatever pieties were pronounced around the gallows. Prostitution existed at the Cape of Good Hope and was organized out of the company's slave lodge. Authorities seem to have encouraged such iniquities to guard against others. How did that homosexuality, a particularly cosmopolitan homosexuality, given the polyglot crews aboard every ship, how did that fit within and challenge this Dutch political and economic order, an order where power over both these these chartered companies that were so important and government were both often dependent on these particular family forms that passed on control from father to son. Chitty writes, quote, as in the northern Italian city-states, the wave of persecutions reflected a secular economic crisis of capitalism. A floating mass of surplus labor appeared alongside surplus capital seeking speculative investments abroad and at home. The Dutch ruling class's punishment of sodomites in the 1730s more closely resembled the cruel spectacles of Venice than the bookkeeping operation of Florence's officers of the night, although it seems to have involved some elements of both. Dutch Regenten, pardon to all Dutch speakers, Dutch Regenten pursued sodomy to punish the poor and provide spectacles of cruelty during a period of economic and political decline. What was the economic crisis that occasioned this wave of sodomy persecution, a wave particularly occasioned, as as Chidi writes, by the way that these new kind of proto-proletarian formations of men, particularly sailors, prompted from elites? And then why did it take on such a particularly cruel and brutal form in the way that it did? You know, it's funny, Dan, as our conversation progresses, you're helping me at least see a certain kind of pattern, right? And the pattern has to do with a deep dynamic that Shitty is tracking around how the history of capitalism creates displaced populations in order to absorb them into its rhythms that, you you know, as Marx points out, you need to separate people from their ability to survive on their own to get them to survive in snatches to the rhythms of accumulation. But at the same time, you know, just like Marx points out late in Capital Volume 1, what you end up doing is creating these surplus populations that then pose a constant problem for the accumulation of capital in various ways. And so in the Dutch case, which is also in the chapter that we're sort of talking about a little bit, the English case too, because we're talking about English piracy as well as Dutch piracy, you see a certain moment, not unlike the one in Venice, where the elites have to walk it back. Because there's always this contradictory question in the disciplining of proletarian and laboring populations, which is you want to maybe use spectacle to keep people in line. But in, in particular, when you're using the spectacle not of publicly hanging a random sodomite, but hanging someone 
uh, for mutiny on a ship or hanging a bunch of people, the threat of a solidaristic backlash looms large. And so there's a moment, you know, in, in Chris Chitty's text where he says, you know, at one point, 15 men are hanged and it's just seen as excessive because it's going to demoralize and possibly create a backlash among these among these sailors, even mutinous sailors. A moment in the text, in other words, where the violence of an anti-sodomy prosecution linked to the possibility of mutiny, it just seems not worth it after a while. Like, let them have their buggery because we need them to be a disciplined workforce, as opposed to in slightly, slightly, slightly different circumstances, we need a disciplined workforce so there shouldn't be any buggery. This just parenthetically is partly what I find so fascinating about a kind of like political and methodological orientation in Chitty's where he calls it queer realism. And it's kind of like, this is a good example. Like he's willing to be open to the possibility that homophobia and the setting aside of homophobia both have a role to play at different times and places in the history, both of homosexuality and of capitalism. That's the realist part. Like rather than being a primal um, loathing, homophobia is like something um, that can be leveraged and something that needs to be set aside. It's one of those things that you see, of course, resonance in our contemporary period for, right? Like rainbow corporations, you know, they're rainbow because it's in their interest, just like in other contexts, it would have been in their interest to be the very opposite. That's his realism. It's his Machiavellianism. It's part of the source of his interest in Machiavelli, who I think besides Marx, honestly, even more than Foucault is one of his key thinkers, actually, that realism, that clear-eyed, anti-sentimental view of what homosexuality and homophobia have been and done, because they are either impediments to or in the service of capitalist accumulation along the way, and both need to be tracked. You can't be sentimental um, if you want to track them both. Yeah, he has a very interesting sort of anti-sentimental, or what he calls like a, a de-dramatized relationship to these histories. At the same time, what he's looking at is a kind of slightly fanciful or even like hysterical response on behalf of the sort of capitalist state to these specters or these threats of, of, of sodomy or buggery or whatever, right. That like the, the pirates, the piracy is a, is a problem, not simply because they like steal certain shipments or whatever, or like impose shipping costs on the Dutch East India company or whatever, but because you really don't know whether or not your labor force is going to be taken with them and start thinking that it's a much more appealing lifestyle because you're not going to get punished for doing what any man would do when you're stuck on a boat with a bunch of other men or whatever. On the one hand, there's like a, you know, calculating rationality to this repression at, at, at points. And other times it it does seem a bit overstated on the part of these authorities. And the fact that you have this floating population of people who you need, who precisely are available because they aren't stable, uh, they can't reproduce themselves. And so the way that you need them is in their instability. When you don't need them, where are they going to go? They're going to show up in the port cities and start living in this kind of unruly fashion. And um, and so one of the sort of triggers of these these Dutch waves of executions is like there's these gangs of, of uh, teen boys in Amsterdam who go around harassing men by the bridges of Amsterdam or whatever and extort that, like sort of come on to them and then extort them whether or not there was actually going to be any kind of sexual contact. And they're really hard to eradicate because whenever they get word that the state's coming after them, they just like hop on the next ship and go to 
Batavia or whatever, because there's this constant need for interchangeable body in the labor force. I want to just read one quote from Chitty about pirates who took the, I guess, like homosexual potentialities of of the homosociality of sailing in a a more radically egalitarian direction, because on pirate ships, homosexuality was not only tolerated, but institutionalized. He writes, quote, in the early 18th century, the pirate and the sodomite were ideological twins through which the ruling classes sought to understand and eliminate the social instability accompanying another global economic shift in the balances of power. Mutiny, piracy, and sodomy were, according to the bourgeois conceptualizations, practices that threatened to spread in the international crews in wide-ranging geographic space open up by commerce centered around the Atlantic. I just thought that those the passages around piracy were really um, inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, a million things I wish that he had live to write. But th- that that's one of those sections I remember him talking about. He had a whole section that he was planning to do on this sort of like counter-Atlantic world. Mm. The next scene for Chitty's history is Paris of the 1790s, where the crisis at hand was economic, but also very much political amid the revolution. And sexuality was center stage. Chitty writes, quote, The revolution had begun to collapse these quaint boundaries between private acts and public space as a portion of Paris moved their sexual activities out of the rented rooms and other private spaces into the streets and parks. This movement initiated a struggle between proletarians and the bourgeoisie over the legitimate use and moral order of the urban fabric, and generated a wholly new kind of libertine literature, one declaring the solidarity of all bodies pursuing sexual freedom outside middle-class norms, and, quote, by appropriating the property of the noble classes for subversive political and sexual encounters, the pederasts and prostitutes of Paris sullied the prize of the bourgeoisie's victory over the rights and privileges of the Ancien Regime. Just wonderful prose. Why did working-class sexuality explode into public space the way that it did? And what, what does that say about the relationship between sexuality and the emergence and making of this important new thing, the modern public sphere? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, so he, he finds these really amazing texts that uh, these revolutionaries were producing in the 1700s. 90s or whatever. So the Tuileries Garden, which is, I take it like right next to the National Assembly or something like that in Paris, it once was a venue for the aristocracy to hold these sort of these balls or whatever, these sort of garden parties in which they uh, carried out what some people call like uh, representative publicness, which had to do with their display to each other as, you know, mutually recognizable members of this social class. And in the revolution, the the gardens of Paris, the royal gardens are are seized and opened up to the people for the first time. There's these sort of like areas available to proletarians and 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 the bourgeoisie, which is the revolutionary coalition, right? And what happens immediately after this victory over the aristocracy is the Tuileries are turned into a cruising spot for for men seeking sex with men and a workplace for prostitutes for women. And so it's this kind of like 
how do you want to put it? Like it's it's this real sort of like overturning of the sort of like moral valence of the previous uh, social worker. Now this like site that once held the kind of like exclusive pleasures that represented domination is is now transformed into the sort of like people's pleasure and like socially marginalized characters. This is like literally right next to the legislature, right? So that it right right down the garden pathway, they're sort of formulating the rights of man. And so from this sort of cruising spot, a bunch of pamphlets emerge that are proclaiming the rights of pederasts and prostitutes as well in a slightly satirical register, but also fairly earnestly. They make a number of pretty remarkable demands, including for pretty absolute sexual freedom, the right to dispose of your body however you want, the right to research into treatments for sexually transmitted diseases, and for a certain kind of role of the state in regulating married men's sexual appetites so that nobody uh, suffers sexual violence anymore. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. I've gotten a sneak peek at their new issue on conspiracy theories out in May, and I highly recommend that you check it out. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. It wasn't only this newly visible working-class sexuality that, that alarmed the bourgeoisie, but also, at the same time, the Ancien Regime's libertinage. Chitty writes, quote, What was once considered a normal sexual behavior among Florentine men, albeit one perhaps associated in political discourse with injustice and the abuse of power, had by the time of the French Revolution become coupled with the quasi-scientific discourse of monstrous sexual abnormality. The shift is an indication of how much the bourgeoisie had begun to fashion the Enlightenment epistemology of sex into a weapon in the struggle against both the popular classes and the nobility, and how extensively the pseudoscientific discourses of race had penetrated the Enlightenment mind. This was also, he writes, a a moment when the persecution of sodomy, though, quote, had lost its teeth. What was once considered a capital crime when associated with abuse of power had become a subject of gossip and character assassination. And I think this is a key shift where, where Chitty's narrative intersects with the story told by Foucault, but, but also departs from it. How did the emergence of both what seems more like modern forms of homosexuality among the working class and poor relate to this pseudoscientific and heavily racialized discourse that authorized these different and actually less brutal forms of punishment. What what are the stakes for Chitty, unlike Foucault, in finding this working class homosexuality that that in some sense precedes 
the pseudoscientific repression? You know, the central way that Foucault imagines the scene that you're describing is kind of a unidirectional thing where in, in Foucault's history of sexuality, they, the bourgeoisie experiment on themselves. And then they discover some things about the psychology or the dynamics of sex that they can use to discipline and mold a working population or a lumpen population even. For Chitty, the, that three-way tug that you actually just described is really actually quite central. So there's an opportunism in the bourgeoisie that sees um, its struggle with one enemy as providing tools for its struggle with another. Uh, so it's discourse of the decadence of aristocrats segues very beautifully into, or is refashioned very easily into the kind of quasi-scientific, psychologizing language of the management of perversity in working populations. And it doesn't all, all happen as once, um, it, but it's that kind of like three-way class dynamic um, so central to the rise of capital as we know it in general, and so recurrent in Chitty's story of homosexuality and sodomy um, that I think is actually a central difference between him and Foucault, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think later, a little bit later in that same chapter, he starts advancing his concept of homosexuality as a contradiction, like a historical contradiction that is the sort of like result of actually antagonistic social forces and historical processes that like it doesn't have any kind of like essential stable existence that you could trace from this earlier period to the present period but is 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 in fact best captured as this sort of like clash of forces and that's not really how Foucault thinks of it so one example of that is these pamphlets, which are an expression of the the revolutionary energies that were unleashed, I suppose, by the by the, the French Revolution, that was in certain moments this sort of class alliance to uh, defeat the Ancien Regime, and at the same time was sort of like the inauguration of the bourgeois rule through the state over a proletarian population which had been participants in the in the streets. An interesting thing that Chidi says about these pamphlets is that they uh, throw into relief how sexuality was a field of contestation across which different political actors and different classes could sort of like assert themselves against each other. So, you know, on the one hand, the bourgeoisie could introduce this new sort of race scientific understanding of proletarian sexuality as like infected with this kind of pederasty or whatever that has to be controlled. At the same time, sexuality was the way that a more proletarian perspective could say, man, the these newly dominant middle-class busybodies really care a lot about how we conduct ourselves sexually. That's kind of, that's kind of weird, kind of new and kind of uh, objectionable. So it's, it's not this unidirectional thing. Among some Marxists, we hear that Foucault was, was the secret agent of some sort of counter-revolutionary 
project, the person directing some cultural ethical turn that that demolished the welfare state from his lectern at the College of Paris. And while Chitty definitely disagreed with that assessment, he believed Foucault's work was essential. He did critique Foucault from another direction. Max, you write in the foreword, quote, but Foucault's history of sexuality omitted most of what was necessary for modern bourgeois sexuality to consolidate itself historically, he argues, and much of the text published here represents Chitty's long effort to correct the errors that Foucault had, wittingly or not, allowed to stabilize into something like a dogma, both within the study of sexuality and, negatively, within more Marxian treatments of bourgeois rule that fail to address sexuality as one of its key components. What is Foucault's famous critique of the so-called repressive hypothesis? And what does Chitty argue that Foucault gets wrong? So I'll say two things. Um, the critique itself, as Foucault says, hey, you know, we have this understanding that there's some Puritanism out there that squashes sexual activity of very natural and diverse kinds. And it's kind of ancient and eternal. And there's this eternal tug of war. But that is a kind of essentializing story. And it totally factors out the ways that uh, sex makes people and can be made to make people, either by communities themselves, if you want to call them communities, or by, you know, powers that be uh, working in a kind of vertical way <laughs> to control populations. Now, you know, Foucault is seen as a critique of vertical understandings of power, you know, a critique of sovereignty, but his model in some ways is a little bit vertical. The bourgeoisie pr sort of like perfect some arts on themselves and then they turn, they look downward and begin um, doing it to, to other folks. So, you know, it's not entirely, entirely categorically different from, from the popular hypothesis that he wants to critique. So there is something really interesting about sexuality as productive of people and liable to being material for other people's designs on people's selfhood. <laughs> um, and that is, that is very alluring. One of the things that um, Chitty says that I think is really interesting is that, you know, Foucault wants to use class struggle as a meta-narrative for the birth of modern sexuality, but that he really only thinks about the machinations of the emergent bourgeoisie and doesn't think about or spend much scholarly attention on or look deeply into the archives of, you know, in as much as there are archives, working communities or proletarian communities, um, thinking about um, how and whether their sexuality had meanings before it was supposedly manipulated by the bourgeoisie. So that's, I think, what he partly means by this comparative historical engagement and how if you only look at one side of the story, you're going to tell a, lop a lopsided story. But there's another thing, actually, that Chitty says that is quite interesting, and it takes us just for a moment into kind of like philosophical territory, but he says, perhaps due to his professed Kantian leanings, Foucault cultivated an indifference toward de-differentiating the ontological from the epistemic. And, you know, that's a lot of big words. But I think that Chitty is pointing something uh, concrete and important about Foucault, which is that he wanted to think about knowledge, not about being. And he wanted to think about, of course, knowledge and the creation of knowledge and the, the stylizing of knowledge as a tool of power. And he wanted to avoid what seemed like more potentially essentializing questions like, who are we? Who could we be? And those questions in 20th century France, at mid-century especially, are the province of Sartre. <laughs> Sartre, the kind of old school Marxist, right? Really interesting passages in Chitty's consideration of these matters where Chitty basically says Foucault pays a price for sticking to just epistemology, to like what is known and said to be known about sexuality, what knowledge of sexuality can do to make people. And what's lost is a question that for Chitty can't but be a question about our being. And it's the question of freedom. 
And there, in the passages that follow on that distinction between Foucault and Sartre, he, Chetty says, you know, there is an element, this is really interesting, right? Given the history of homophobia in the States, especially, there's an element of choice involved in laying claim to a certain sexual identity. Now that is a a delicate thing to say because of course, right-wing evangelicals have for a long time wanted to eliminate the possibility of certain kinds of sexual liberation on the basis of saying like, you chose this and everything you get because of your choice, homophobia, discrimination, HIV, that's, that's on you. So for Chitty to say, you know, at some deep level, let's call it ontological, you want to affiliate yourself with people, the people who make you feel alive, the people who make you feel comfortable, the people who, with whom you feel safe being sexual. That's something like a choice. <laughs> and Foucault doesn't go there. And so that's the other thing besides that um, absence of a proletarian archive in Foucault that actually, though it sounds philosophical, I think is pretty crucial for Chitty's understanding of some of the limits of a Foucaultian model. Yeah. And then gay and more recently trans activists have sort of reacted to these right wing attacks by insisting that the basis for the right to be gay or trans is that it's biological and not and not a choice, something that Andrea Long Chu wrote about a few years ago in, in N plus one. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a conversation that still has lots of potential room to grow and move and get some more oxygen in it, because what's biology? <laughs> what's your what's your conscious or unconscious relation to biology? What does it mean to choose something under compulsion freely? You know, that's why I think Chetty's interested in this language of not just choice, but freedom. Under what conditions do we even get to make our choices? Right. So there's more to more to think about there. Let's turn to 20th century capitalism and its epicenter, the United States, the period that will also allow us to re-examine modern gay rights politics and the order that it was rebelling against. To start, what sort of order was the Fordist 20th century and to what end was it operating? Part of the answer, Chitty writes, I think is to be found in Gramsci's analysis of Fordist capitalism and capitalists new attention to worker sobriety and sexual morality, exemplified by none other than the Ford Motor Company's Department of Sociology, which intervened into the most intimate aspects of workers' lives to ensure the reproduction of a very particular type of worker. Why did the rise of mass production occasion this universalization of middle-class norms upon workers in, in a way that had not been true in earlier phases of industrial capitalism? Why did the lives of workers become so important to capitalists in, in the radically new ways that they did? I mean, I think um, it is a really American story, uh, or at least an American and European story about that care for the whole life conditions of workers, because of course you could look at other parts of the world in this time and see much of what you would see today, <laughs> which is a lack of that care. But yeah, so in as much as the U.S. takes the helm, in terms of leading the, the drumbeat of the rhythms of capital in this moment in history, early 20th century to mid 20th century, it does matter, right? And I think that the Fordist Department of Sociology um, is a great example. I mean, uh, Chetty talks about it right at the beginning of the, at the book. This dominant form of production, production of what will be universal mass transportation technology in a dominant part of the world serves as a model for maximum efficiency across all possible contingencies of the labor process, extending to the reproduction of a stable workforce. And that is something that is and isn't 
a dynamic that capital cares to take on for itself at different times. You know, sometimes it wants to offload that <laughs> and sometimes it wants to take that on. The importance is simply that um, this was a moment when both the ideology and the real material dynamics of efficiency in this emergent technology of automotive production were, were of the utmost. Does the contemporary auto industry practice such care anymore <laughs> uh, around its workers? Well, no. So that right there. So it's like a double, double dynamic, actually. It's sort of like part of the history of developing a certain kind of sexual morality, but it's also a reminder of the historical contingencies of such developments. You know what I mean? There are times when capital does care about that, certain technological sectors, certain places, and then uh, and then there are times when it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, taking the Ford Motor Company as a sort of like paradigmatic model of capitalist relations globally is not an uncontroversial move. However, I think it's interesting you have a, a highly advanced, highly capitalized production process that therefore requires like an extremely highly attuned labor force to match it. And the idea that that would simultaneously, as it produces new technically advanced commodities, would produce new sort of technically attuned people is a very suggestive concept and I think helps explain a lot of what is otherwise a bit atmospheric about these histories of change in sexuality. What then does that Fortis moment and, and its generalization of bourgeois sexual morality, what does it mean for Chitty, for, for how we understand modern homophobia and also how we understand the struggle against that homophobia, the, the modern gay rights movement? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So there's there's one story that a lot of gay historians rely on, which is intuitively quite satisfying, which is that, you know, the expansion of commodity production loosens restrictive pre-capitalist peasant family ways and increases sexual freedom effectively. And Chitty says, that's, you know, somewhat true to some extent. He does trace the uh, liquidation of peasant sexualities and rise of these sort of proletarian and bourgeois sexual hegemonies in the cities and th and things like that. But um, And he also traces that sort of pattern all the way back to the early modern period. Yeah, exactly. But you then don't have a way of accounting if, if it's this sort of like positive relationship where like more capitalism means more sexual freedom, then you don't really have a way of accounting for the fact that this new advance in the techniques of production led to unprecedented level of uh, state repression, right? So let's say Fordist sexuality is characterized by pretty anomalous level of state visibility into and control over the sexuality, sexual behavior of the working class. And that's not what you would expect if there's this sort of flourishing of sexual freedom alongside commodity production model. For me, you know, I, you know, was an ardent student of the kind of gay and lesbian history that Chitty is describing and providing helpful critiques of throughout the course of my 20s. That scholarship always gave me occasion to reflect once I got a little bit of a historical education on the difference between a kind of like, let's say ancient world or early modern homophobia that's kind of just kind of like a superior sneering at someone 
you know, maybe a political rival, you know, oh, that fairy, whatever, versus the kind of like mortal violence of the homophobia that I would get news of by reading the queer press, you know, when I was coming of age. You know, the, the, the level of violence that we hear about these days more and more because it's better documented in trans communities, trans communities of color, or that were like really spectacularly covered in the days of Matthew Shepard's assaults and murder in the late 1990s, when, you know, mostly it was assaults on, you know, white cis gay men that were taken note of. That more mortal kind of violence um, compared to that earlier form of, let's say, rivalristic sneering sort of like quietly ran against in some ways what I had been told was the Foucauldian model, right, of like an earlier brutality that had been aerosolized into kind of unlocalizable forms of discipline, psychology exams and, you know, questions of normalcy. And so that was always a little bit of an interesting question mark for me. So that years later, when I got to Chitty, I found myself feeling like I could have some tools to think about this. One pang, I guess, I feel about, oh gosh, what would Chris Chitty have made of this phenomenon, right? Is about what his analysis might have been of sort of McCarthy-era anti-communism and homophobia in their entailments at mid-century. You know, that's not something that this manuscript addresses. But in a way, it seems like a perfect or culminating example of exactly the argument of this book about the mobilization of homophobia when it serves the needs of capital. Because, you know, what was, uh, what was the character of U.S. homophobia or what was its alibi? It was a certain kind of anti-communism, right? Rather than like, oh, my rival here in medieval Florence is, is a fairy and you should give me the position in the state apparatus or whatever. It's like that little sissy over there will never be a soldier. And if he were a soldier, he'd probably betray our country, you know, and then we'd lose a nuclear war. So of course we should beat him up, <laughs> right? And that entwinement or entailment is discursive and therefore, I suppose, um, susceptible to or friendly to a Foucauldian in, in, in analysis. But it also is... A bunch of other things that are quite material about the um, the fear of different form of social organization, right, of actual communism. So, the tools of this book uh, afford the opportunity for thinking about something like mid-century American homophobic anti-communism or anti-communist homophobia <laughs> in in tandem, right? Like I think that this book helps us helps us do that in a better way. Chitty writes, "Quote." With significant national variations, intimate arrangements under late capitalism now display a variegated pattern of precarity. Informal coupling, serial marriage, delayed marriage, and single life. Parenting has been delinked from pairing. In retrospect, nothing appears to have been historically normal about middle-class nuclear family norms. These were quite extraordinary. End quote. As developmentalist states encouraged and promoted middle-class nuclear norms in order to facilitate working populations' adjustment to more demanding labor processes, it's not so surprising that this hegemony should break apart during a period of flexible employment, declining real wages, debt-fueled consumption, and successive asset bubbles. High-income societies became morally apathetic toward perversions and differences of sexual taste, as enduring intimacy and stable families became anomalies in the lives of ever more people. What are the consequences of these, of these transformations of political economy undermining this Fordist family norm? Because on the one hand, Chidi's arguing these are immiserating forces, but he's also certainly not nostalgic about the Fordist family. What does it mean to understand neoliberalism as disorganizing the Fordist family and thus signaling the, if not the end, then a sort of crisis for a certain idea of normal. And then what what does that mean for queer politics being a liberatory politics? 
Yeah, that's a, that's. I think that's one of the trickiest places he sort of landed himself. So the sort of like the decomposition of a sexual form that was a sort of integral part of a historical regime of accumulation that is no longer hegemonic, let's say, means that the political formation that emerged within it as its sort of internal antagonist will find itself without any kind of organizing force to sustain its own project. So he has a kind of deflationary end to this story that does make it kind of difficult to see what types of liberation or even what types of mobilization would be possible, given that there isn't a hegemonic sexuality against which to sort of generate any kind of political heat. At the same time, I think, you know, he wrote these chapters before 2015. And now, in retrospect, the 2010s were somewhat anomalous in terms of what types of mobilization was possible around politics of sexuality. And we're obviously currently in a relatively successful remobilization if not a mobilization along new lines of various social forces that are finding themselves to be at stake in certain forms of gender, right? Sexuality as reprised by the figure of the trans child, basically. And so that's another thing. This is one of those moments where I'm just like, damn, I really wish I could hear what he had to say about this stuff. Um, Because it seems like such a throwback on the one hand, you know, and on the other hand, it does, there's been a a fairly successful, what he says is neutralization of the antagonism around whether or not a homosexual is a standpoint of human freedom, um, is a sort of like actually antagonistic political point, which the capitalist society understands itself to be uh, threatened by. Chitty does write, quote, following the transition to industrial capitalism, the development of modern sexuality is nonlinear, sudden jolts forward, backward or laterally into entirely different sexual norms seem to be the rule. So was Chitty writing during an end of normal neoliberal moment, but now perhaps a decade or so after he wrote those lines, we're living through some sort of restorationist moment or an attempt, an attempt at one? You know, I think one thing that you can see in earlier chapters of sexual hegemony that would be of use, you know, as we move forward, trying to take these tools into a new moment and use them is something like the language of profitability, because neoliberal or not, post-neoliberal or not, each of these shifts in in what we experience as epochs or eras are often marked by um, shifts in capitalist strategies to maintain profitability, right? So we, there's a lot of talk about, first, it was the kind of like uh, re-Keynesianing of the neoliberal era with public disbursements of various kinds. And now there's a much more uh, ominous version of the story of the end of neoliberalism, which has to do with the birth of trade wars, which become could become potentially at any moment actual wars. <laughs> but I think for somebody like Chetty, who is tracking crisis in a, in a somewhat deeper way by thinking about the declining prices of the commodities that had made uh, the Florentines rich, for instance, like crises of profitability, 
the names that we give to periods that are really the names of capitalist strategies can belie or sort of like a little bit obscure some of the continuities, right? So that doesn't mean that it's a linear story, but it means that those shifts that you just um, described, Chitty describing, Dan, are often shifts in response to or in tandem with shifts in ruling class strategy, which distort and deform and reform um, all kinds of people's lives, right? So I think that's one way of thinking about what he might have thought about this moment. Right now, at the same time that gender and sexuality have this renewed salience on the far right, many young people are joining a growing trend of disaffiliation from the gender binary. Where does that fit in this present moment? What what does that simultaneously taking place reveal about the place of sexuality and gender at this moment of of seemingly interminable crisis or interminable interregnum? There's a so there's a line in one of these later chapters that I uh, I, I find so clarifying. It's about the '60s moment, remembered as this as this you know time of sexual liberation, but it's also famously. Uh, the birth of the sort of evangelical uh, movement, or not birth, but, you know, the sort of resurgence of this iteration of it. In terms of, you know, how do you think about the simultaneity of these two apparently opposite uh, understandings of what sexuality in the one moment and now, let's say, gender in the present moment mean? He says... um, One could similarly ask of the late 20th century whether the apparently conservative fundamentalist Christian revival and the radical counterculture of free love weren't perhaps two faces of the same spiritual awakening, each intensifying the discursive status of sex by endowing it with profoundly transformative powers. I find that really useful in terms of seeing how this is a moment that is perhaps characterized by what appears to be uh, divergent, but is in fact a kind of mutual assertion of the determinant power of a gender, let's say. He's not the only person to do this, but I think for me, reading through this work really helped drive it home in terms of its mechanisms. If you think about gender and sexuality as pertaining to not simply a kind of like natural or biological reproduction, but the reproduction of class relations, the reproduction of class society and the reproduction of labor power in the family. When you see the sort of fascist reactionary right speaking about various, you know, perversions and gender, whatever, they're, they're, they're talking fairly plainly about a form of class society that they are anxious to see either brought into being or sustained through this with Chitty kind of familiar form of policing and familiar form of ruling class concern for intimate modes of reproduction of the working class. Why young people today have less of an affiliation with an older form of gender expression or gender belonging or whatever. I mean, I think it's pretty simple to draw a line between what gender means as something internal to an historical period of profitability and an attunement to the sort of imperatives of reproducing yourself along lines that conform with what capital demands of you. And the fact that that particular social order is 
constantly revolutionizing itself and constantly undermining itself and recomposing itself. And so you would expect to see as, you know, capital shifts its strategies for accumulation or chasing falling opportunities for profitable expansion that, you know, the older modes of reproducing gender that were attuned to these obsolete forms would of course be discarded by younger people who are acutely aware that they have to find new ways of reproducing themselves in a sort of changed class society, even if they don't articulate to themselves like that. To, to put on kind of Chiggy's Machiavellian realism, you know, it's not that there wasn't some very noble struggle by heroic queer people against forms of um, state repression and, and devaluation and cultural violence, of course. But at the same time, you know, at a certain point, your enemy decides the battle's not worth fighting any longer. And you that's one of the reasons you get to win. <laughs> and that is, for a moment, something you could say is like its own story and it unleashes uh, certain possibilities for people. Meanwhile, back in capitalist accumulation, you know, new crises present themselves to these various ruling classes and a fraction of that ruling class, you know, the one hiding out mostly in the former slave states and linked to less heavily industrialized forms of capital accumulation, you know, those those places in the country reaches for its grab bag of strategies to restore its not just status, but its its ability to reproduce itself and its conditions um, and then those two things collide. And that that class of capitalists, you know, as we know, is like really deeply linked to ideas of social hierarchy and the gender binary is a really useful resource, not just for thinking of people as opposites of each other, but as hierarchical opposites, like men are in charge. Um, so, you know, different histories with different timelines tangle together and re- slide apart and then and then come back around to meet each other is one way I tend to tend to think about it. Chris, you write, quote, what makes Chitty's scholarship so interesting is his willingness to let go of the possibility of and the desire for a we based in either an identitarian communitarian homosexuality or an abstractly anti-normative queerness. This is because he sees the vicissitudes of capital accumulation as analytically and historically prior to the formation and deformation of classes. And he views those processes as themselves prior to any identitarian experience of sexuality. It is also because he sees homosexuality's identitarian expressions only barely masking a class conflict with homosexuals on both sides, a conflict that runs deeper than individual identity and that obviates any attempt to make gay people or queer people an anti-capitalist identity category to core. So if Chidi does not think the emancipatory promise of queer liberation derives from from a specific identity or even a specific sexual practice, then what is its promise? His his friend and comrade, Evan Calder Williams, thought that it was its attention to, quote, the messy terrain of friendship and intimacy and class inseparable from the spaces of capital and the attempts to make them our own. You know, cumulatively, one of the things that I felt was so powerful about Shitty's work in this book was a way of being realist about homosexuality in the different guises it has worn, a gay identity, an anti-normative queerness, aspects of which clearly, you know, Chitty lived in his, as his and in his individual biography, you know. But at the same time, um, his, his intellect ran deep and I think he saw that, among other things, the history of male homosexuality was a great example of the openings and foreclosures 
afforded by different kinds of intimacy, friendship, sexual contact, community on the fly, community more stabilized and then deformed, all those things. Opportunities sometimes and not always, um, but it is an example of one kind of thing that has served people who are outside accumulation, sometimes dragged into it, kicked back out of it to give shape and meaning to their lives, including potentially a shape and meaning that was about not wanting the world to be a capitalist one anymore. But I think what's so powerful is that there's no innate sense that in the 2070s, if for some reason we're still fighting to overthrow capitalism in the 2070s, there's going to be something innately anti-capitalist about queerness or about gayness or whatever it's going to be called then per, per se. I think he saw that really clearly. That doesn't add up to poo-pooing the potentials um, that accrue to different life ways. Maybe your anti-capitalism begins with your queerness, <laughs> you know, and maybe it's all the more powerful because of that. And maybe it doesn't. And so I don't think he's throwing up his hands at homosexuality per se. I just think he's not making too much of it while trying to tell a better story of all that could be and has been made of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned before, but there's, you know, there's there's a real urgency even around this rhetorical move to say that these forms of being are given by nature, basically, right? That kind of, that there is no question of uh, decision. There's no question of deliberation or whatever. And, and that would then either result in a kind of like explosively anti-capitalist form of desire that like could only be a question of birth really, or this sort of reactionary view of, of these forms of sexuality as like as dysgenic or degenerate or whatever. And it just doesn't seem to capture like, if that were the case, then, you know, you would imagine that there would be some kind of revolutionary band of homosexuals or something to point to that actually did overthrow uh, an entire globally distributed system of production and exploitation. And that's not the case. So he sort of like frees you from the the sort of strange imperative to to elevate these questions to that level. So at the end where he's talking about the sort of like, you know, the loss of a hegemonic antagonist that organized these sorts of liberation movements as, you know, liquidating the ground beneath their feet. He makes an interesting point that like, it might be better to understand queerness as this relationship to a sort of class linked stability that he has a really interesting way of putting it, that queerness denatures and renaturalizes these sorts of decompositions of the reproduction of the class relation. And that it might be more reasonable to think about like a poor heterosexual couple who has to live out of their car as having more in common with what is being tracked historically than, you know, uh, ruling class person with really elaborate kinks or something. Also, because it's not this quality of birth, basically, it's not a natural category. It's this contradiction that inheres socially in the historical process as different regimes of accumulation and modes of production, sort of capital strategies succeed each other, but never fully liquidate past ones. The real content of 
this history that he's tracing of queerness or whatever is solidarity, basically, of sort of finding moments that you can steal for yourself and people with whom you share pleasure within this antagonistic social order that that demands a certain kind of attunement of your very intimate being, you know, your pleasure and your self-concept to these dictates of capital accumulation. And so queerness on the one hand for him is like, it's not this like eternal genetic stain or whatever that like endows people with a special kind of like really exciting and powerfully revolutionary form of having sex. And at the same time, it is this effect of a historically like ineradicable capacity among people who live inside capitalist relations of exploitation and production and reproduction to find ways of living together that aren't simply these imperatives of efficient sacrifice of your life for profit. Well, Chris Nealon and Max Fox, thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Chris Nealon teaches English at John Hopkins University and is the author, most recently, of a book of poems called The Shore and a collection of essays on poetry and capitalism called Infinity for Marxists. Max Fox is a writer and translator and a founding editor of Pinko Magazine. We've been discussing sexual hegemony, statecraft, sodomy, and capital in the rise of the world system by the late Christopher Chitty. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the proletariat created by the forcible expropriation of the people from the soil could not possibly be absorbed by the nascent manufacturers as fast as it was thrown upon the world. These men, suddenly dragged from their accustomed mode of life, could not immediately adapt themselves to the discipline of their new condition. They were turned in massive quantities into beggars, robbers, and vagabonds. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every Every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archive at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please, Find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.